Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, I'm joined by Patrick O'Donnell, the current working cop and writer who's been gracious enough to come down and answer a few questions for us. Patrick works in a major metropolitan area and has more than two decades of police experience under his belt. He's worked in patrol, specialized detective units, and on task force. During his ongoing career, Patrick's held undercover assignments, vice details, and served in armed robbery squads. He's also served as the incident commander during several officer-involved shooting investigations and earned multiple commendations and meritorious service awards for putting himself in harm's way above and beyond the call of duty. From this cop's bias perspective, Patrick truly personifies the term cop's cop, and I'm grateful he joined us today. Patrick, thank you so much for making time to Writers on the Beat. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, now you've uh, you published, uh, I understand, three works so far, uh, one fiction, a couple non-fictions, uh, and you also do technical advisement for uh, other aspiring authors on law enforcement issues, right? That is correct, yeah. My other books are um, under pen names and um, not in, it doesn't have anything to do with law enforcement per se. And then there seemed to be a need, and I kind of reached out to the indie author community. And like I said before, there seems to be a need or a desire to, for technical advice, you know, for authors writing crime drama, even just about any kind of uh, book that has anything to do with police work. So that's what I do. Yeah, you know, and it's it's amazing to me, right? Like when somebody starts uh, asking questions about, uh, you know, crime or criminals, criminal psychology, police behavior, you know, it, it really isn't limited to, to just our genre or crime thrillers or mysteries. Like even romance novels tend to have an element of crime in them. They tend to have some interaction with, with good guys and bad guys. Um, you know, so I would expect a lot more folks um, could probably use your help. And, um, you know, that, that probably got started, I, I would speculate maybe with uh, you having found some pet peeves or something with uh, in in your fictional detectives you were reading? Well, yeah, that and uh, television shows how Hollywood detects <laughs> police. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's difficult to sit down and watch a show with your wife. You know, that's complete garbage, and you know nothing is even close to reality. But you know, that, that's fiction, and yeah. I also read and. The authors that I've helped so far, I've you know just given advice to. They're not like totally off the mark. Mm-hmm. There's just certain things like some of the specifics, like the detective um, unholstered his Glock from his shoulder holster and you know took the safety off. And yeah. of course, there's no exterior safety on a Glock. And shoulder holsters went out a while ago, for the most part. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah it, those types of things. Yeah, you know, it's like I try to steer them in the right direction. Yes. Or you know, there's a oh. Before I go any further, I <laughs> should say I do not officially represent any specific <laughs> police or law enforcement agency, and do not intend for any of this conversation to be legal advice. If you need a lawyer, go get one. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's it's funny, right? Like, you know, how many times in your career so far do you think someone's asked you, "Should I get an attorney"? You know, yeah, if you're, if you're asking, guess what? You, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. If if you think 
the the cop standing outside your window is an objective source of legal advice first <laughs> <and> <laughs> on. second you <laughs> do need an attorney you know um yeah it's it's two totally different things you know and and cop work that's one of the things that um i i think uh, run into most often, you know, inside and outside the profession, right? Like we're all type A personalities, you know, we all, um, with rare exception, are, you know, really outgoing people. We're also generally, you know, I think because of the culture and the the, the risk we take going to work every day, um, you know, we have, I think, an, a little bit of an inflated complex about having to be right all the time about everything. Um you know, so like, you know, when two cops, so if, if you ask 10 cops how to do something, you're going to get 12 answers and you know, <laughs> they're not necessarily wrong. You know, they're just different. Right. So when, you know, if I'm writing a book about, you know, Dallas PD or my book takes place in Dallas, um, I probably don't necessarily want to find out how NYPD handles a case like that because, you know, there are so many factors that make it totally different. And, you know, whether you're in a different circuit court, whether you're in a different state, big city, small town, assets, no assets, all those things make such a big difference. And um, I would imagine, you know, you probably get that quite a bit on the on the technical advice side with, um, you know, people yeah. putting stuff. Yeah, in you're, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. You know, unless you write cozy mysteries, where, you know, mm -hmm. there's a police department of three people mm -hmm. you know, where the, the chief is out running radar every day, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, like the, for example, I was helping an author um, with her transcript and the whole story takes place in Boston. Now I'm in the Midwest and the department I work for uh, is about 1800 people sworn and the population of the city is about 600,000, whereas Boston, yeah, it's close. Most like big cities are pretty similar. Not all the, not always, you know, mm. there's, there are differences, but I was able to do enough um, research on my own to help out with it. And obviously being cops, you understand a lot of the lingo. If you Google mm. something and it's like, hey, you know, this, that, or the other thing, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, I know what they're talking about. You know, so it makes it a lot simpler for us to figure all that out. And like I said before, I mean, Miranda's Miranda, you know, the Constitution's mm -hmm. the Constitution, you know, is, yeah. that's the same. It's just, like you said, there are different ways of doing things, that's for sure. Yeah, and one of the things uh, like that that, um, you know, has created some some problems in, in, in uh, new opportunities for learning, I guess, in in, in uh, the last couple of years of my own work was everything that's going on with uh, decriminalizing pot uh, or having mm -hmm. medical pot in some states and decriminalized pot in Colorado and, and Washington. Um, and, you know, here in Arizona, you know, we're under the ninth circuit um, for the federal system out of San Francisco. And here, uh, because, um, uh, because pot isn't decriminalized there is medical pot but um with if a cop smells weed and nobody's got a medical card that's still pc for a search of the car um but you go to places like colorado um and if you're going to put your crime up there and you know there's odor of pot the cops have to act totally differently they don't have 
the probable cause, the ability to, to get in the car right away, just off that smell. Um, and, you know, it's, um, there are, you know, really quite a few differences like that across the country. Um, some of it's procedural, some of it's legal. Um, but, you know, for most people, I think generally, you know, especially that most of them write homicides, you know, homicide is, is generally homicide. Um, you know, so right. you kind of look at a lot of differences in assets and resources then maybe. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, you mentioned that 10 years ago, I was involved in this uh, task force where we had 101 cops and we dumped them into just a four or five block radius of the most violent part of the city. Wow. You know, and we had like real time data where most of the shootings and killings and, you know, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And we would just saturate the area. So we were arresting a ton of people yes. that were in these areas. And, you know, it was the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I can't tell you how many times we'd arrest somebody for, okay, they had, you know, like a dime bag of marijuana in their pocket or a nickel bag or whatever. And they're like, well, that's legal, right? And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not legal. They were convinced. And I mean, <laughs> I could tell they were in BS. And, you know, yeah. it's like, they're just like, come on, really? And I'm like, yeah, really? I mean, a small amount is a ticket where I work. Yeah. And then the second subsequent would be, you know, like a regular crime. Yeah, but the first the first shot is a ticket. It's yeah. a ordinance violation, so that's the difference. Yeah, and um, you know it's it, it's interesting when you talk to cops from other parts of the country about how you know differently some things get handled, and um, you know like with the um, the emerging or ongoing uh, fentanyl crisis um, and opioid epidemic. Um, I did a bunch of work for for my last agency on putting together our um, unknown chemical response, um, mostly centered around fentanyl. And so I, I talked to cops from Boston where fentanyl and, uh, it, I mean, it's a huge, huge problem there. From what I was told, heroin almost doesn't even exist anymore in Boston because fentanyl has so heavily taken over the, the street. Um, hmm. And they handle things so differently than uh, I talked to other cops in uh, Vancouver, BC, up in uh, up in Canada, and they have a massive epidemic up there, uh, largely, I think, from my bias perspective, because of their uh, the nation's um, tolerance for personal drug use. That it's you know it's right. an addiction issue, not or a personal choice, not anything criminal. Um, so it's a lot more rampant. Um, but Vancouver, BC has like, I, I think in their municipality, they have both the wealthiest and the poorest zip codes in North America. And wow. in a couple of years ago, Thanksgiving or the week of Thanksgiving, they had like 454 overdoses um, related to heroin and fentanyl. But so wow. those, those two massive problems in mass or major cities, right. That aren't really that different, but the cops mm -hmm. in Boston um, because of the nature of the drug use and the drug, all the ancillary dangers associated with their drug culture, they handle things so differently than Vancouver uh, PD and Vancouver paramedics. Um, okay. Paramedics up in Vancouver because they aren't really worried about guns or violence because there's not a whole lot of violence around the drug trade until you get a little higher up in the trafficking end of it. Um, mm -hmm. they were, they would send their guys in with, you know, uh, basically just an N95 and gloves and, you know, wow. maybe some naloxone. Uh, mostly they're just doing CPR. Boston's like, 
man, we got to get more people over here. We're not, we can't go in because we can't risk all the ancillary dangers. Same problem, two right. different solutions, you know? Um, oh yeah. Where I'm at, um, heroin is huge. It used to be, I started in 95 and crack cocaine was like the drug of choice on the street. Cow. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, those, we call it the crack wars. You know, people are getting shot and killed left and right every night. The, the, the neighborhood that I started out in, you know, I started midnight to eight. I was mm -hmm. in the worst part of the city. You would at least have one or two shootings a night. That was just for me. I mean, wow. we, we got crime scene management down to an art, you know, because you oh, have yeah. so many of them. But now it's which that's still going on with crack cocaine, but the big deal is heroin and heroin laced with fentanyl. Mm -hmm. So like what you were talking about, the precautions you have to take, especially when you're testing these drugs. Yes. I mean, oh my God, you'd, we've already had officers accidentally get exposed to fentanyl. You know, you find your partner on the ground you know, oh, so you yeah. have to have Narcan yeah. available. They dress them up like, you know, spacemen, like yeah. astronaut. Mm -hmm. You know, you, there's, you can't be too careful with this stuff. Well, the scary part, too, is we've, we've already had instances where marijuana has been mm -hmm. laced with yeah. fentanyl. And, you know, you know, you got the college kid that's going into the bad neighborhood to buy some dope. They don't know that. No. And now all of a sudden, you know, junior in school is overdosing and yeah. everyone's scratching their head. Why? You know, it's <laughs> it, the, the game is changing quite a bit and it's very, very dangerous. Yeah, I was, you know, my one of my um, bigger fears around that is, you know, the the little Richie Rich kid that, you know, wants to go buy, a, you know, a small bag of Coke for the weekend, buying a, a bag of fentanyl, you know, not realizing what it is, you know, and exactly you know, it ends up in this this accidental death over, you know, a recreational drug use that, you know, uh, it's just unconscionable. Um, yep. Now, in in terms of, of all this, you know, super happy conversation we're having about all the, the, the death and murder <laughs> mayhem around us, um, you know, I didn't really appreciate the weight that a badge carries until you, until I stopped putting it on every day and you know started coming back into some degree of of civilian life. I mean, I'll, I'll never never be that HUA again, but. Um, after, you know, the new and shiny wears off of those first few arrests and those fights, you start taking the burden of, for granted of, of the responsibility you have to yourself, to your partners, and, and to the community to do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. Um, for, for you, Patrick, as a cop author, you really have a unique opportunity to write from your own experiences having been there and done that. And I wonder how you as the author try to translate that responsibility for the job in a way that readers might understand and appreciate. Right. It's kind of, it's kind of a precarious thing because obviously I don't want to give up police secrets that would mm -hmm. ever, ever lead a police officer or law enforcement person in any kind of danger. After oh. you write, after you read this book, you know, That's that kind of thing. A nightmare. But I think it's important for people to realize, you know, it's like what we do and why we do it. The first book that I'm that I wrote, you know, it's called Cops and Writers from the Academy to the Street. This is gonna be more basic stuff. Okay. You know, and the reason and how I'm doing this is more or less from people asking me. Um, I'm big into the twenty books to fifty K group that Craig Martell and Michael Anderley started. Yes. And Craig is a great guy. Um, 
when he comes down from Alaska, I usually have dinner with him in the state that I live in. And uh, he's just genuinely a nice guy. And he's really helped me out. And as far as the self-publishing stuff goes, that's a great resource. And uh, a lot of people, once they found out who I was, what I do, you know, they would ask me these questions. And it could yeah. be as basic as how do I become a cop? What, how do I do it? You know, what does it take? What is, you know, what are the requirements, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how I'm starting the book. And then the second book that I also wrote, but it hasn't been edited yet is more into the investigation side. You know, okay. who does what at a crime scene? Yeah. You know, um, then I break it down to the different bureaus within a detective bureau, like robbery, homicide, sensitive crimes, property crimes, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I do include my own stories, you know, and I try and I even say, it's like, Hey, if you're stuck on when you're writing your story and you're stuck, feel free to plagiarize, you know, <laughs> go ahead <laughs> yeah. and you know, use maybe a portion of one of my stories. That's fine. I don't care. Yeah, use a, a bit of this for inspiration and run from here. You know, this is this, correct. This is your writing prompt. Yeah, right. Now, you uh, you obviously didn't start out working uh, officer-involved shootings or special investigations uh, vice unit. What what was your progression like up through the ranks um, of your uh, your agency? Well, I started like everybody else. I was a police officer. I started in January of 1995. Um, went through the academy in larger cities they have their own academies mm-hmm. um, a lot of tech schools in the area have academies that are accredited through the state so when you graduate you are a certified law enforcement officer but you have to get hired by a department or sometimes the department hires you and will pay your way through that academy now when you go through a big city like say new york or chicago or la they have their own culture their own way of doing things Mm -hmm. and they want to instill that into their recruits or cadets from minute one. (laughs) Exactly. So that's, that was my indoctrination was, and back then it was a paramilitary organization, you know, spit and polish, uh, lots of PT running until you puked and then you ran some more, you know, just (laughs) lots of abuse. And yeah, I, I made it through that academy. That was six months. And like I said, I got sent to a district. You had no choice in it. Now they're actually giving recruits um, somewhat of a say where they go, which was unheard of when I was, yeah. when I was brand new. And it's more of an adult learning environment where before it was a very you know, like basic training kind of environment. Yes. Now yep. They're treating it a little bit differently. And I guess, you know, maybe they're changing with the times. I, I don't know. It's it's a different world than what it was, you know, 25 years ago. It is. So I I guess there's, there's both good and bad with that. But what happened was um, I uh, wound up going to the late shift. And I didn't know it because I wasn't from the city. <laughs> I just kind of visited uh, a couple of, like, attractions or go to concerts mm-hmm. or something like that. And uh, I didn't realize it was like the worst, quote unquote, the worst part of town. So wow. I'm brand new. And yeah, I start, yeah I, my first six weeks of field training were on late shift, which was midnight to eight. And that would have been in so the heat of summer imagine. too, right? Yeah, it sure was. Yeah, yeah. And it was one of the hottest summers like on record too. 
Yeah, that, that always makes for, people calm and makes them, you know, nice and pleasant, right? The dog days yeah. Of yeah, drink drinking malt liquor is not a, a substitute <laughs> for Gatorade. That's all I gotta say. And good things don't come from that. No. But yeah, you don't make good decisions when you're blasted drunk, which was most of the people we dealt with when you work at night like that, you know. Yeah. And I uh but, you know, I got a lot of great experience. Very you know, sink or swim. Mm-hmm. I did that for uh my first six weeks of field training. I mean, mm-hmm. just just to go quickly, uh, a story. I was like maybe my second or third day on field training. Yeah. I was in the wagon. I'm sitting in the passenger side. We get sent to a homicide. They give a description of the guy who just stabbed somebody. Well, it was a stabbing, but the guy wound up dying. The guy um, stabbed his buddy in the armpit. And as you know, that doesn't work out so great. There's lots no. of arteries floating yeah. around in there. So yeah. <laughs> we're like heading to the scene where the first squad heading to it and they give a description of you know it's a black male six foot tall you know, medium build white t-shirt jeans da, da, da. and sure as shit there comes a guy running at us with a knife in his hand match the description to a t oh, shit. We, we just look at each other i jump out and i'm like right in front of him so you know, i draw down on him you know drop the knife and i thought to myself i'm gonna shoot and kill this guy on my second or third day on the job this sucks yeah so he literally stops in the dead in his tracks. He probably saw like my eyes and I was like scared out of my mind and he was scared. Yeah. So he drops the knife and I'm like, turn around, put your hands on your back. And he actually does it. He didn't run, which is unheard of. Yeah. Yeah. So we hook him up, put him in the back of the wagon. We go to the, um, where it happened. Paramedics are working on the victim. He's got an IV in each arm and they're literally squeezing the saline in, which is not a good sign. No. And they have him on a backboard in the ambulance and they're like, okay, kid, ride with the, ride with the victim. And if he says anything, you know, write it down. I'm like, okay. So we're off to, you know, he wouldn't say, he was just groaning a lot, the poor guy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, he goes, we wind up in the trauma room at the hospital. Now, this is all new to me. I've never done any of this before. Yeah. And I'm by myself. And I go in, and I'm not sure if I can go in or not. And I'm like, oh, what the hell? I'll go in. And, you know, my FTO, the, the, my field training officer, said, just follow him. Wherever he goes, make sure you go with him. I'm like, okay, cool. So I go in with him. And, you know, there's a small army of doctors and nurses working on this guy. And to make a long story short, he crashed three times. And the third time that he crashed, the doctor grabs a scalpel, opens up his chest, breaks his ribs, and starts doing open heart massage. Like, literally, I'm like maybe 15 feet from where all this is going on. And the guy winds up dying. And, you know, we go through the whole process of everything, the medical examiner coming out, et cetera, et cetera. And and I'm thinking to myself, this is literally my second or third day on the job. I I went home and my ex-wife now I, I looked at her and I said I have the coolest job ever if this happens every night this is the coolest job ever I can't believe all this shit happened in one night yeah of course, it's I not mean, like that every night but no, thank that's God. how I, I started really, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so yeah. what happened with me is I I was at that district then I went to um, that shift then my second half was early power which was 11 o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night in the same area but 
you had a little more variety of crime there. Mm-hmm. You had suicides, yeah. you had burglaries, you had to some property stuff. You know, you still had, you know, like domestic violence, which was a big chunk of our uh, calls. But we also, I got more um, gun and drug arrests. Yes. Out of that, people were just slinging dope in the middle of the day. I was like, out of my naive, I didn't think that actually happened. And I'm just like, holy cow, this is crazy. Yeah. So I, I got a great education. And then uh, after field training, which is 12 weeks total, I went back to late shift. And I worked at that district of late shift for about six years. And I worked, you know, they put more senior officers with more junior officers sometimes, but you earned a squad in a squad area. So I did that and I, I did okay. Then we had a new police chief of police come in and he wanted to just shuffle the deck. So he, he transferred about half the cops that were in the department. Wow. So I went to a different district, still working midnight night to eight. And then I uh, worked at that district for about a year. Then I took the promotion exam and I became a sergeant which I think is the best job on the department. Yeah, and then all you can talk about is risk management and liability mitigation, right? Oh, yeah, you know, (laughs) like you said, the weight of the badge, but now you're in charge of other people, and, you know, their safety is paramount, but also is their, you know, their job safety, too. Yep. You want to make sure you're guiding them in the right direction so they don't get into trouble. Like you said, there's liability, there's all kinds of BS. Yeah. You know, there's, um, you know, I, the first few years you're on, right? Like everything's bright and shiny. It's all fantastic. It's all new. It's all exciting. Every day is, you know, just a front row show to the greatest show on earth or front seat to the the greatest show on earth. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, and then, you know, when I started working as a, as a trainer, as an FTO, you know, I was like, man, Everything this dude in my car, everything I say, he's going to take as gospel unless he's got prior experience, right? Like, I right. I felt a whole lot of whole lot of burden with that. I'm like, man, I I I really need to uh, need need to be cognizant of what I'm telling these guys and what I'm showing them how to do this stuff. Because if I go running into something headlong and dangerous, they're going to be right there behind me. And you know, well, and it's also dangerous being an FTO because you, you know, your partner is so green, they don't know yes. which end is off. Yep, yeah, you know, I was an FTO as well before I became a sergeant. And some people, some recruits that I had were fantastic, they caught on right away. They were either like excellent report writers or they're really good on the street talking to people. You know, either you have the gift of gab or you don't. Yes. And, you know, some of these guys, you know, and some of it's previous work experience and life experience, et cetera, et cetera, that that makes a difference. But yeah, now all of a sudden, you know, before you were responsible for yourself and your partner, if you had a partner. Yeah. And but your partner probably has as much time or maybe even more time on than you do. So you're pretty much in a fair and even playing field. Yep. But now you have something that's super brand new and you're like, Oh God. Yeah. That got to be a bit much. Yeah. The, uh, that reminds me that we had a, a trainee that, um, he, he personified the, uh, an an acronym we, we used, uh, Muppet 
um, the most useless police person ever trained. And, um, <laughs> that guy was terrible, man. Like it, it, there, there, there are people who shouldn't just shouldn't be cops for a variety of reasons. And, right. you know, we like, you know, Dr. Charles Webb, I think is the one that said, I'll, I'll tear up his quote, but he basically, you know, said that, you know, the police are the bodyguards of society, right? We, we want them to come handle all of our problems uh, without having to see or worry about how they do it. And, you know, so cops have to be able to go into and recognize incredibly dangerous situations and do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons and to do it immediately before somebody gets hurt, them or someone else. And this guy couldn't do any of that. Um, Right. And, you know, the thing about it is, like, at our department, working midnight to eight, you didn't have the luxury of having specialty units. There was no SWAT team. There was no motorcycles. I th- I still think that late shift personnel are just the masters of improvisation. Yes. And just, yeah. Yeah. You know, I I'm I work day shift now, and if something is like, okay, yeah, we we need the SWAT team for this, or you know, we got a barricaded subject, blah blah blah. You know, before it's like, yeah, you call them in. By the time they get to your scene, everything's all done and over with. Mm-hmm. You know. And it's yeah. the same thing with like, you know, fatal accidents and et cetera. All I have to do during the day is just get on the radio and it's like, yeah, I need some bikes over here. And they take care of almost all of it. Yeah. You know, and even if the, uh, even if the SWAT guys do eventually get there, I mean, it's almost always an hour until they can show up and be operational. Oh. Right. And so Absolutely. E- either the situation has resolved itself through, you know, some intervention or, you know, some, some cooler heads or, you know, uh, you've had to sit out there and keep your guys up on perimeter while the calls are stacking up behind you um, and other things right. are happening for an hour, hour and a half until someone's ready to relieve you, you know. And, uh, Correct. You know, that, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's just, you know, books and Holly movies, one of the major things that I see that they get wrong is they don't give the police officer enough credit. No, it's the street cop and sometimes the street sergeant. They're the ones who are chasing after people. They're the ones who are kicking down doors. They're the ones, you know, mm-hmm. they're the ones yeah. going hundred miles an hour down, you know, chasing another car involved in high speed pursuits. And so they have the most liability. They have the most danger. It's, <laughs> you know, instead, you know, you, you'll see, you know, something on TV or something where you have this detective Lieutenant that's there. They're serving a search warrant, and she's pushing you know the SWAT guys out of the way. You know, like yes. please, <laughs> you know, like they're not. They should. She shouldn't even be in that building. Detectives yep. aren't there. You know, it's like okay, when everything's done and secured, yeah, that's the last thing those operators want is some detectives like in their raid jacket flopping around. It's like I right, get out of here now, please. Yeah, yeah. I my uh, my wife and I used. We haven't watched for quite a while, but we used to watch Criminal Minds all the time. And it's such a character-driven show that we, you know, we liked it. Um, and I, I liked the characters enough that I could get past all of the tactics and all the strategy that they got so badly wrong, right? But, yeah, it's always the FBI guy in a soft armor over his polo shirt leading the entry team, you know. Or one of my favorites was they finally catch the guy, and there's like eight of them. And they have him encircled, all with their guns out, and all walking closer toward the bad guy. You know, 
So <laughs> right, or they're all pointing their guns at each other. Yeah. And you're like, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> it looks yeah. cool on camera, <laughs> but man, yeah, just you know, they 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 should have hired you, Patrick, and they could have solved that solved that problem. You know, they well, wouldn't be talking about it now. But yeah, yeah but, like you said, you know, it's just it's so incredibly ridiculous. And not to call out, you know, specific shows, but I'm sorry, but the SWAT guys aren't running around solving crimes. No. And they're not running around wearing <laughs> jeans and super tight t-shirts, you know, going around, you know, with their leg holsters, you know, going if It's such, it's yeah. so ludicrous and ridiculous. It just, it drives me crazy. It makes my skin crawl when I see this stuff. And you're just like, oh, come on. Yeah, yeah, they're not doing any of that. No, and for, and, for the, oh, go ahead. And of course, you know, with any of these shows, all the cops are in perfect shape. They look like they yes. just jumped off a fitness magazine, you know, cover, and it's like, yes. yeah, it's not exactly like that. I mean, some guys are in really good shape, but some guys aren't. Yeah, well, same you know, thing with the gals. I think you know, you you have that, you know, for most most of the cops I worked with, most of them I still know we peaked somewhere near the end of the academy. <laughs> there are a few guys <laughs> who yeah. improved further, you know, but for the most of us, if we weren't being chased, yelled at, or punished, um, you know, we weren't running that hard, you know? Um, <laughs> right. and, you know, for the, for the benefit of the, of, of the audience, um, it reminded me when you were talking about, you know, the, the SWAT guys going around solving crimes and um, the, uh, Police, in, in my experience, cops, uh, different assignments cater to different personality types, right? So for right. the most part, most of the SWAT operators, are they're very competent, very detail-oriented people. They may not be your best choice of investigator because they might not have enough long-term attention span to pay, you know, to, <laughs> to really make that work. Um, yeah, a good... I'm sorry, go ahead. I say, and, you know, generally, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily want the property crimes detective who's been there for 10 years. He's probably also not going to be the guy who's going to lead the entry team through the door and, um, you know, be in a half mile foot pursuit. You know, there, there are, you know, <laughs> we tend to find the assignments that work for our personality and our physique. <laughs> and, you know, you are exactly right. You know, people gravitate towards, you know, when you're a brand new cop, you kind of, you, you get your, you, you dip your toes in the water and you're trying yeah. to figure out which of is up and people gravitate towards certain things. Like you said, mm -hmm. there are some that like the physical work and the excitement and the fun of being say on a SWAT team and you know, they don't want to write reports all day. Yep. You know, they don't want to do all the tedious follow up where some people actually enjoy writing reports and are very good at it those become your detectives mm -hmm. and they're very detail-oriented they want um they have a lot of patience you know a good way to look at this is a good friend of mine um adam that uh runs the writer's detective bureau yeah that podcast yeah. and the facebook group yep. yeah be adam richards great guy yeah one of his episodes he compared the police department to the high school where <laughs> the SWAT guys are the jocks. Yes. The nerds are the detectives and the CSI guys are the ones who really enjoyed chemistry class. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm yeah, like, that's... you know what? That's spot on, man. That's yeah. And like I said, you know, people like, for example, motorcycles, you know, those are our traffic guys. Mm-hmm. You know, it's cool to drive around on a motorcycle, but that also means you have to take, you're taking accidents all day and you're running radar and you're doing traffic enforcement, you're investigating accidents. But there's some people who actually enjoy doing that. I'm not one of them, but you know, mm-hmm. I like riding motorcycles, but I don't like doing all what I just mentioned. So, yeah, yeah. Now, now I have a, one one of my theories about police personality and and, and cop work in general. Um, when you came, or when you started the academy, did you want to go mm-hmm. into? I already I've probably eliminated one answer already, but did you intend on going into narcotics, SWAT, or motors? Because that's all anybody wants to do. Right when you're, I the- just wanted to go to the SWAT team, but <laughs> yeah. you know, it just seemed cool. I, yeah. I'm like, well, shooting guns off all day and breaking down mm-hmm. shit and like yeah. blowing doors up and you know, lobbing gas into a house. Oh hell yeah, that that's cool stuff. Yep. But what I found out was working late shifts worked best for my family. Yes. And in order to be like on our SWAT team. You know, you start out on nights, and nights for the SWAT team was five in the evening till one in the morning. And if I worked that shift, I'd never see my kids. No. Yeah, so it just wouldn't work. So that was very disappointing. Mm -hmm. But I wound up um, staying on late shift for a total between sergeant and cop for 13 years. Wow. Working midnight to eight. Yeah. And then I worked seven at night till three in the morning for four years. So I did nights for 17 years yeah, and I've been day shift for the last seven years. I think it's been, yeah, somewhere in that ballpark. Now who, uh, who was your first writing mentor and what was that relationship like when you started to try to develop this side of your business? Well, the funny thing is, like I said before, you know, I, I, I sold cars before, I um, became a police officer and I sold cars. I bartended. I did all the odd jobs you do while you're taking um, tests at different departments, trying to get hired on. Mm-hmm. It's not always an easy thing to do. And, you know, it takes time. And I was selling cars. So I wound up writing a book about how to buy a car. And I thought I needed an agent. I had one lined up. You know, she was going to actually, uh, I was friends with friends with a friend that was in the book business and she had an agent, a publisher in New York, one of the big ones. And she looked at my manuscript. She said it was great. And I'm thinking, oh, this rocks. So at the last minute they got into a spat and I called her and I said, well, I hope this doesn't affect, you know, me. And she says, I threw your manuscript in the garbage. (laughs) <laughs> I have nothing to do with you because I hate him. And I'm like, well, that makes a lot of sense. Great. So then I heard about self-publishing. And, yeah, I went through a nasty divorce. So I wrote a book about that. And then a friend of mine that I work with, he was working on his Ph.D. as another sergeant. And he was so sick of writing his dissertation, he just wrote a post-apocalyptic book. And he made a bunch of money on it. And I'm just like, oh, okay, I'll do that. That's yeah. a, that looks cool. But as far as mentors go, again, Craig Martell, I sat down with him. I remember the first time ever 
And he was such a genuine, nice guy. And I asked him, I said, you know, what's the secret to this? He said, hard work. He yeah. said, you know, the more books you write, the better you get at it. And he said, nothing sells your next book like your last book. He says, you just got, you just have to keep on writing. And, you know, but, you know, the big stuff is, you know, you know, have the right cover, um, mm-hmm. have the right blurb. And, of course, you have to have a good book. Yeah. So in spending the money on, you know, getting a publisher to polish it up for you and make it legible yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all those things. So, again, the 20 books to 50K group, that's been a huge help. Brian Cohen from the Selling More Books show. Yeah. I'm friends with him. And I bounce more than one thing off of him. And he's been really helpful to me as far as anything book publishing wise. And I've really appreciated everything from him. Uh, Sci-fi and post-apocalyptic. I like that genre. This is before I started writing anything dealing with law enforcement, Boyd Craven. I just reached out to him. He's a very prolific author. I think he's got probably close to 30 books. Wow. And I, I visit him every now and then he lives by uh, Flint, Michigan. Okay. And he's just a treasure trove of information. And, you know, it's inspirational to be around these like people that are just regular people that there is no magic pill. There's no hack. They're just really hardworking and they're good at what they do. Yeah. You know, it's uh, I, I can't say that lightning strikes don't happen because you know they, they right. do, but you know one of the major recurring themes in this podcast is that it takes a decade of blood sweat and tears to become an overnight success and yeah. you know, the people that you're just now hearing about it's just i i think there's i, I see so much analogy between the publishing business and the writing business and um in the music industry right so the right. band that you just fell in love with hearing their song on the radio it's probably their fourth or fifth album um, they've been playing clubs and playing together for 10 to 12 years, and they're just now making a buck. Um, oh, and, you're absolutely and, right. Like the Beatles own their craft playing in strip joints in Germany. <laughs> that, that before they ever cut an album, before they came to the United yeah. States, before they did anything, that's where they became the Beatles. Well, you know, you, you can mess up all you want. You're not the center of attention at that club. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> that is, a, I hope not. <laughs> Nobody's Otherwise, even... you're not going to make a whole lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. When, uh, when you do read a fiction or uh, watch TV, who's your favorite fictional investigator? Oh boy. I'm so old school. I really loved Columbo. Yes. Back in the day. Because you know what? In the age of you know high speed chases and fights and this and that, he used his brain. Yeah. You know he was very very clever. I remember one time, I was involved in a high profile homicide when I was a police officer, and I wound up on the stand. I was testifying, and the defense attorney reminded me so much of Colombo. Wow. I mean, I've had just crazy lunatic defense attorneys that are screaming or just doing ridiculous stuff. And they more or less make themselves look silly when they do that. Mm-hmm. But this guy was just smart. And he, and like I said, he even walked around like Columbo a little bit <laughs> and he played that jury like a fiddle. Oh my God. Wow. He was so good. And I'm just like, if I, and the whole time I'm up there for like over an hour sweating 
with news oh, cameras yeah. in my face, you know, da da da. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, if I ever get into a jam, this is the guy that I'm going to hire. Because <laughs> he, is, he is that good. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I love, I love Columbo. I love the Rockford Files. You know, that's yeah. kind of like yep. what I grew up with. And again, you know, he kept his gun in his cookie jar. And he, you know, yeah, there was some gratuitous, you know, like chases here and there or whatever. Mm-hmm. But he was a smart guy. And, you know, he always... He figured stuff out. You know, I like the the people that made you think. Yeah, you know, I actually uh, it became harder the last few years because you know the the Columbo episodes became hard to find. Um, but I've used Columbo episodes as training tools for new cops for years. That you know, I would oh, yeah. specifically make them watch a few episodes of Columbo and and analyze his his interview and interrogation technique. You know. As I, oh, absolutely. I, you know, I'm personally not a, a huge fan of, of the the potential problems with Reed. Um, but Columbo, for me, and the way that I worked, that guy nailed it, man. You know, let him lie to you. Play dumb, you know. Oh, um, absolutely. He wasn't intimidating him. at all. No. Right. No, let them let hang themselves. And then in the end, and then, I'm sorry, just one more question. And then you know he's gonna nail him to the wall. Yeah, it was perfect. Yep, perfect. Yeah, I that was like my favorite investigator, without a doubt. But then you know, I remember watching Barney Miller and uh, mm-hmm. Hill Street Blues. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah, they're not a hundred percent accurate, but I like the camaraderie. I like you know, you know, of course, you know, had the ID guy come in and was like, ooh. Ooh, you know, there's the night inspector that you're like, oh God, what, what is this guy up to? You know, and yeah. yeah, just all the different personalities. And as you know, you know, with cops, there's so many different personalities that you just mishmash up into one unit and you all have to get along. So yes. that's, that's interesting. Now, I asked this, this last question of uh, everybody that comes on the podcast. So keeping that last answer in mind, Patrick. Uh, God forbid it should happen, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, would you want Columbo, Barney Miller, or some other detective taking your case? <laughs> Definitely Columbo, if he could be reincarnated. Okay. I, I think Columbo would get to the to the gist of it. I think he would figure it out. Lieutenant Columbo from SFPD on the case. <laughs> Hopefully never. Exactly. Well, Patrick, I greatly appreciate you coming on. Uh, where where can um, readers and aspiring authors connect with you and your your technical uh, technical advisement service? Uh, let's see here. Well, you can get a hold of me at sarge at copsandwriters dot com. That's s a r g e at copsandwriters all one dot com. I just started a Facebook group of cops and writers. If you just go cops and writers, I should be on there. And between those two things, you should be able to get a hold of me. I'd be more than happy to help you out. Well, I greatly appreciate your time, and hopefully, some some folks will take it take advantage of your expertise. I'm really grateful for you to to come on and uh, and chat with us this afternoon. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been longtime cop, author, and all-around superhero, Patrick O'Donnell. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there. (laughs) 